Because if we were really concerned about children's safety, we would stop criminalizing and demonizing poverty. We would eradicate that by not pushing little black kids out of school. And we wouldn't be forcing people into systems that we know feed into the incarceral state and the foster care state. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Good night, everyone, and welcome. Thank you for joining this conversation, Social Work and Abolishing the Family Regulation System, a conversation about the role of social workers organizing for justice in the so-called child welfare system. This conversation is the is provided to you today by the Network to Advance Abolitionist Social Work. It's our third event in partnership with Haymarket. And the NASW is a group of social workers from across the U.S. building a time-limited initiative to support abolitionist social work in the field of social work. And we're doing this through Twitter chats, Instagram lives, conversations here with Haymarket, and many, many other resources that you can find on our website, which I'm sure one of our wonderful, wonderful people organizing alongside us is putting in the chat right now. Really excited for this conversation today. I cannot tell you how much I admire the women that I'm about to be in conversation with. I have been looking out for their work for many years um, and have been inspired by their critical conversations that they are forcing folks to have right now. We are at a critical com- we're at a critical moment in our nation where there is a mass call for abolishing the systems that are used to incarcerate black and brown and indigenous people and children. And what we know is that social work has historically and today been deeply embedded in the systems of carceral control. And the child welfare system has played a major part in the oppression of families. This is a moment for us as social workers to reckon with a system that was built and maintained by our field. The folks on this panel have been committed to imagining new ways to support families long before this moment. And I, again, am honored to be in conversation with them tonight. And as we were planning for this panel, we knew that we wanted to invite folks into our process, a fireside chat, a kitchen conversation in this moment when we are invited into people's homes. You may see some of our families walking through or hear some of what happens in our lives. We also know that Black women have always come to the table organizing outside of the spaces that they may have needed to be a part of um, in order to build in the tradition of collective care and organizing that has allowed our people to move forward in this country. So this tradition requires that we delve into our own personal and lived experiences, and we hold that truth. So we will be digging into racial and our gendered identities in this country and our families and our work in advocacy. That also requires that as allies and people who are showing up to this conversation, that we have some expectations of you. We may have some call to action and we invite you to be in this conversation with us, really believing and understanding our stories as we are survivors of these systems. In just a few moments, I'll introduce our amazing panelists. We'll move into a series of pre-selected questions and dialogue, and we will leave some time for audience questions. We have a chat function, so please feel free to get curious and ask questions offer affirmations, 
And at any point, if you want to share work that you're holding or resources, we invite you to put those radical strategies into the chat. So now on to our amazing panelists. Tonight, we have Halima Washington, who is a Black mama and social justice advocate from New York City. Halima has over 15 years of experience in human services and has made it her mission to be a social change agent. She has been action-oriented, lobbying in Albany as an activist and advocate, fighting for criminal justice reform, reproductive justice, education reform, fair and affordable housing, and HIV AIDS-related issues. She continues her activism efforts with the End ASFA, Abolish ACS, and Defund ACS campaigns, and her advocacy efforts through work as a birth justice defender. Thank you for being here tonight, Halima. Excited to be in conversation with you. Joyce McMillan is a thought leader, advocate, activist, community organizer, and ed educator. Her mission to is, is to remove systemic barriers in communities of color by bringing awareness to the racial disparities in systems where people of color are disproportionately affected. Joyce is the founder and executive director of JMAC for Families, a 501c3 she founded to support families and has been doing this critical work that we, and we have seen her throughout this fight and call to abolish ACS. MJ Malika Jihad is the director of MJ Consulting Firm, an agency focused on dismantling systemic racism in the child welfare system through education, advocacy, and policy reform. She's a CEO and co-creator of EC3, EMIC Cultural Consultants Collective, where she specializes in organizational and individual transformational work with structural racism. And as an adjunct faculty member at the Graduate School of Social Work with the Den University of Denver, she teaches race, privilege, social justice, and law courses. Thank you so much for y'all for being here. I hope you have your tea, your water, ready to sit back after this long day and be in some serious conversation about how we can abolish and think about radical imaginative strategies to support folks in our communities and families. The first question I have for y'all is... How did you come to this work? Um, why are you engaged in this work? I come to this work because I was impacted by the family regulation system 21 years ago. And they stayed in my life for 18 years because they came into my life when my youngest child was three months old. And at a point, I did some research to find out who they were. At first, I thought something was wrong with me. And then I realized that once they come into your life, it's like a flag or a target is on your back. And the school system and every other mandated reporter somehow knows that you have once been um, impacted or surveillanced by this system and the repeated calls begin. And everyone is cautious, covering their own behinds, better safe than sorry, report, report, report. Mandated reporters do not support. They only report to a system that has horrific outcomes. And then we have mandated reporters to surveillance people to put them into the system that creates those outcomes. And I, for one, said that it must change and began to do the work to make sure that that happens. So we'll just let it flow. And if you want to pass the mic, pass it on to. Hey, go ahead. Right above me. All right. Um, 
So um, I'm a survivor of the child welfare system. I never started off by saying that, but I didn't realize how a key important role that that played in the work that I do. But when I got to the point of actually having the conversation of the abolishment of the child welfare system, it was um, an amazing colleague of mine and we became really good friends. And he had essentially called me out. Um, his name is Dr. Yamante Cooper out in LA. He specializes in trauma therapy for African-American boys and men. And um, when I told him the field that I was in and the field of, of child protection and working with the Garden Atlantis office and then working with Parents Council Attorney, he said, oh, so you uphold systemic racism. And I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a black woman. I, I don't understand. Like, I'm a survivor of the system. I'm African-American, Native American, survivor myself. And he said, unless you are actively dismantling a system that you know is racist, then you are upholding it. And it changed my entire outlook, entire outlook. So that's how I got to the point where I'm doing more of the anti-racism work. And, um, and I always challenge the word, anytime we say radical, um, in white America, equality is considered radical. Equality, because we're not talking anything radical, but just saying, treat us the way that you would treat the rest of white America. So I always um, laugh at the term radical because to us, it feels so radical. Um, or to everyone else, it feels so radical. But to us, we're just trying to live. So that's that's how I got into to this work. Hey, everyone, can you hear me? Okay. And for me, how I got into this work, it was both um, personal experiences. Um, and as my, through my work as a birth justice defender. Um, so for me, my son, I had to bring him to the hospital for an asthma attack and he was admitted to the intensive care unit. And um, I didn't like the treatment that he was receiving. And at the time, I was still do working heavily with the birth justice defenders with the New York City Department of Health. And we were developing a uh, what you call a New York City standards for respectful care while birthing. It's in the hospitals now. And so as an advocate and an activist, <clears throat> I knew that I had the right to ask for my son to be transferred to a different hospital. Well, what happened was I received an ACS investigation. Um, a report was called in on me and said that uh, I was trying to leave the hospital with my son against medical advice. Um, and I brought the issue back to my group of birth justice defenders and the, the the whole collective and told them about my experience in the hospital and how like I'm actively fighting an ACS case. And one of the things that I brought up is that we have these New York City standards for respectful care while birthing for people to know what their rights are. But what happens when people use or speak up for their rights and then people weaponize the system or weaponize the family regulation system against them? What protections are there for those families or for those people who have had the system weaponized against them? And the response was, well, there's nothing in place. 
you know, there will be casualties. And for me, that was unacceptable. And so now I find myself in the work to dismantle the family regulation system so that while parents are birthing in the hospital, they don't have to worry about that system being weaponized against them. Thank you for that. Um, So a lot of coming to it through experiences, lived experiences, and then also coming back and saying, what do we then do, as most of the time Black women do, um, to fix it? Because that's how we get through this moment. Uh, A lot of folks who tend to join these conversations are social work students or folks coming into the field. And so language like family regulation system may be new to some folks. I would love to hear from you, how you came to understand what the family regulation system is versus naming it child welfare or foster care. Um, why, why is it that we're trying to shift this language? Because it's not about the welfare of children. The child welfare system does not care about the welfare of children. They care about regulating our families and regulating our bodies and regulating any and everything that we do with our families to live and thrive. And Joyce, I'm going to pass it to you because I know you have a more expansive uh, (laughs) answer for us. You're on mute. That's it in a nutshell, Halima. And, you know, it's very interesting because I'm going to go back to what um, MJ said when she spoke about um, being called radical. I remember when I first started this work, they said I was radical and I was completely offended by it. But now I wear it as a badge of honor because I understand white folk and me are speaking two different languages. Evening the playing field for them means radical. Anything that appears that black people are going to get their just due is radical. So therefore, I will be radical. Um, I was on a call earlier today and I said to them, I said, I have a cat. And, you know, they ask for closing words and I go, I have a cat. So they're like, okay. And I'm like, yeah. And I got my cat at two weeks old and my cat uses the litter box, even though he's never seen another cat in his lifetime. Right. Because I got him at two weeks and he's over a year now and he covers his poop in the litter box and he does all of the things that cats do, including cleaning himself the way cats do it, right? He didn't need to be taught that. There are certain characteristics that are a birthright. And so our humanity uh, is not seen as people of color. For some reason, they believe that people of color don't have humanity and especially black people, right? And so with that being said, if people all do the same things, right? Naturally so. We get mad, we get sad, we get depressed, we get happy, we fall in love, all of the same things. Why is it only Black people who this system has um, captured in their um, debunked system that creates failure? Yes, I, I was not very familiar with the you know, the system regulating, but that is the the correct format. Um, We know that that the system surveillance um, families and and we and we bottle that in and we we call that, you know, these are people that are looking out for the children, looking out for for the families Um, in the mandated reporting. I know that one question that that we had talked about was about how as a social worker, we're mandated reporters, right? 
I think that we need to reimagine what that looks like because there is a disconnect. As a social worker, your job is to help and support and give families tools. So the way that mandated reporting has been abused is is saying that this kid looks like they need something. I'm not going to provide them with that something. I'm going to reach out to other people in hopes that they get provided with something. But I remember I I used the example of the um, Chicago school system and how there was a lot of phone calls from one school um, in inner city Chicago that was getting a lot of phone calls to CPS saying these kids aren't in school, these kids aren't in school. Come to find out the reason why the kids were not in school is because they didn't have clean clothes. So are we going to truly remove children from the home because of poverty? And that's essentially what we are being um, incarcerated for. And I and, and I consider the system an incarceration system, um, because unless you are a child that have been in the system or a parent that's been in the system, you don't even understand what that feels like at all. Um, we are still on the, the white savior complex of I know that this child could be in a home that that can better financially support them. So therefore, it is a better home from them. Um, And that is white supremacy at its best in the child welfare system. So I go back to mandated reporting and I go back to the field of social work and as a social work instructor. And I say, what are you doing to solve the problem? Because that's honestly what our job is. How do you support the relative? And we use the term relative in our organization. We don't use client. Um, And we get that from graciously from the Navajo Nation. Um, down in Southern Colorado, which they, I remember one of my colleagues said, why, why do you call them clients? Why are you trying to separate them? But we fall into this understanding of what professionalism is. Professionalism is just hierarchy of white supremacy. Um, there is not a lot of distinction between professionalism and white supremacy because the standards are very much the same. So I will be referring to what everyone else refers to as clients as relatives because we treat them differently when we start changing the language. But as a social worker, your job is to help solve the problem and help support. And making a phone call to the Department of Human Services, what problem is that solving? It's lazy. You're passing the buck. Figure out what the issue is. Unless it is severe sexual abuse and severe physical abuse, and I always say severe not necessarily that it has to be egregious, but severe is in like you you know what's happening and you understand what's happening. Um, because as as JMAC can really talk about, is that link between the child welfare system and the justice system or the injustice system for people of color. Um, so you have young kids that are being removed because of possible inappropriate touching at the age of 10 or 11 without any therapeutic services and then being criminalized for it. Criminalized, having cases where they are trying to prosecute 11, 12, 13-year-olds as sex offenders. And we know that that's that correlation, right? So it's all connected. And that's why we talk about abolishing the entire system, which I have the utmost respect for. Absolutely. And it looks like I'm going to be tailgating MJ today. Um, So she said something else I want to tailgate. She said, unless you've been involved, you don't know what it looks like. But I want to just paint a picture of the parallels. Children are strip searched in foster care under the guise of checking for marks and bruises or pre-going into foster care. Even though in New York City, while 8,000 kids are in foster care, um, 86% roughly are there for reasons related to neglect, which is poverty being framed to be neglect. 
So these children are being strip searched, separated from everything they know and love, set visit days, set visit times, oversight during the visit. They eat what they're served. They change homes as regularly as prisoners change cells. And they too use garbage bags or pillowcases to change locations. And we could go on and on about that, right? But for in lieu of time, we're going to just skip to the end part where children are paroled back to their parents if they're lucky enough to go home and don't meet the fate of a termination of parental rights. And Prisoners are lucky if they get to come back and be paroled to the community, both having oversight during the parole period. So it's really simple to understand any system built under the guise of protecting children should in no way look like a system that was built purposefully to punish someone and torture them which is the criminal justice system. So the fact that we have these parallels and then we look at the 13th Amendment, we're the only way to have slaves in this country, which is why now we have mass incarceration because we want a mass amount of slaves. And then we create foster care and it becomes a prerequisite if you look at the outcomes to the foster care system. So when we talk about systems working together and what it is they do, pay attention. And for anyone who says to me they're concerned about a child's safety, that's impossible because if we were really concerned about children's safety, we would stop criminalizing and demonizing poverty. We would eradicate that by not pushing little black kids out of school. And we wouldn't be forcing people into systems that we know feed into the incarceral state and the foster care state. Thank you so much for that. That was just straight fire. Halima, I will pass it to you. Just wanted to acknowledge that in terms of breaking it down and really talking about what we're seeing, like having that information is really, really important because I think the picture is, is that this is protecting, right? And so then being able to make it very clear what we mean. But if we, if we know that families and young people need to be bonded and have that consistency, how this is disrupting that. Um, well, so it is protecting Michelle, I just want to add that it's protecting black children from success. Yes. Woo. Okay. Yes. I, I can't even follow that up. That's oh. got to let that just sit there yeah. and marinate. So years ago when, when, well, not many years ago, I only came to this work about six years ago, but when I did, it was like, I was at the point where I was completely fed up. And I decided that I was going to spend my weekend doing some research on the agency that kept coming back into my life and tormenting me and my children. And when I did the research, I mean, I went through the website with a fine tooth comb. And what I discovered is every neighborhood that was black or poor had over a thousand children removed. And then when I looked at white communities in New York, um, Bensonhurst, Battery Park, Soho, they had one or two children, three tops. And I was like, wow, this is not a Joyce McMillan issue. It's not just me that this is happening to. Because oftentimes we feel ashamed. We feel like there's something we're not doing. Um, it feels like a place where you're really judged because the general public have this belief based on the narratives that um, the only way that 
this system would separate your family or interrogate your family or repeatedly come into your life is if something's wrong with you. And they, the way they do it is you almost become conditioned and you're running this rat race, trying to live up to their expectations of perfection, but no one's perfect. And we say that all the time, but yet we go into people's home and expect them to be perfect. And we don't go in as social workers and assess because first of all, most CPS workers are not social workers. They're case managers. And let's be clear on the difference between that. Let's not undermine the work of a social worker, but you don't find social workers working for corporate America. So social workers end up working for systems a lot of times and the boundaries that they set within these systems um, is smaller than Um, the responsibility of a social worker. So they create these boundaries that prevent you from doing anything outside of what they want you to do, which is to destroy families. And so why people call it the family regulation system, based on what they did to my life, I call it the family destruction system. Because when they came into my life, I was full-time gainfully employed. I had a car. My oldest child was in private school. I had never been involved in the system. By the grace of God, no system. And when they left me, I was drug addicted, homeless, ended up being incarcerated. I lost my apartment, my car and my credit score. And of course, my job, in addition to what began it all to spiral out, was them snatching my children for what was in my urine and never assessing the care that was being provided to my children. I'm sorry. No, Michelle, please. I I just I'm taking it all in and I'm, you know, appreciating because. It, it, it's just real. And also giving space for y'all to chime in. I think in, in naming that and being able to hear that, what is it when we, when there is a calling for having experienced that abolition of this system and also hearing the ways in which y'all have been creating, um, liberatory spaces, um, for the people that you're working with, for the communities that you're working with, for your own families in this. Um, and I think um, knowing Joyce that you're working directly with families who are impacted, Halima, your work, especially with moms and, um, you know, birthing rights, and then MJ, your experience teaching, what does this look like in those different facets um, when we think about abolition and then creating something beyond this? Well, I did a fellowship with Law for Black Lives. And when I did the fellowship, I was very grateful to have been chosen because everyone was a young, rambunctious attorney, um, Black. And um, I was one of two people that was not an attorney. I learned a lot in that space. And one of the things I learned was how to divest in systems and invest in communities. So not only do I work directly with parents who have been um impacted or who have survived this system, I also run the Parent Legislative Action Network, another um, thing that I founded. And what we do there is it's a coalition of attorneys and social workers and several organizations and schools, Columbia School of Social Work, CUNY Law, um, NYU Family Law, Bronx Defenders, and many other organizations where we come together and think about legislation that will have a great positive impact for families. Um, And one of the things we're seeking to do now is provide families with Miranda rights, the same way it happens in a criminal justice system, because the two systems align. And had I known my rights when they came, I would have never 
um, let them into my home, one, I would have immediately lawyered up. And two, I definitely would not have given them a urine sample because that urine sample for them said who I was by character, what I was capable of, how my children were treated and how good of a parent I was. And none of that is true because what do you say, Halima? A drug test is not a parenting test. Amen. And for far too long, we have been believing that a drug test is a parenting test. And because of that, people have had their children taken from them after two hours after being born. And that is absurd. The fact that people have been stripped of being mothers or being parents because of something that was in their urine is absurd. And the fact that we have been conditioned to believe that those people are automatically guilty. And especially if you're a black mom, if you're a mom who's mothering on the margins, you're automatically considered guilty. You're never even proven innocent. It's like because of the shame and the stigma that it is to be to have any child welfare involvement in your life, it rips apart all of your relationships. If you had a, a, a community care network for you, if you had a, a, a group of people or folks in your life that care about you and your children and your family and who have been working with you because of involvement with the family regulation system or the family policing system, what happens is people don't want any don't want have don't want to have anything to do with. The, the family policing system. And so because of that, they will abandon you. They will abandon your family in an effort to save themselves. Because once that system has entered your life, it, enter, it enters all parts of your life. Yes, yes, on every level, Halima. Um, I, I see that a lot. What... I remember I was presenting um, at a conference, uh, a panel discussion, and I was talking about how psychology and social work is used as a tool against families of color in the child welfare system. And they do that on so many formats. So they'll go with a theory and no one asks. And, and as a students, we always say you have to critically think, critically think, what is the information that you're getting? But now we have to take it another step. Who were the participants in that research study? Was it participants that experienced trauma through the child welfare system? How are you able to compare apples to oranges um, on all levels and say it's the same? But then if we say something about what about attachment to biofamily, that, that, that doesn't matter. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about that. Um, what I usually have to explain to everyone that I work with in doing um, I always say that we are the most extreme DIE work because we want you to change internally. Um, I always say, you know, you go to 24 hour fitness if you want to feel better as a gym, but you go to Orange Theory if you want to be better. Um, and we, we want you to be better and understand the way the system truly works. So when people get into the system, they don't say as professionals, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this as most racist as I can. Um, you go in there and you say, I'm just doing what I was taught. I'm just doing what I was told. And, and we forget to critically think because we are in panic mode. When you are a caseworker, you have so many cases. 
if anything goes wrong, it is your face that's on the news. It's not anyone else's face. It's not the judge's face usually. The judge will come way last if they made a decision, but it is the caseworker. So this whole covering yourself, this this working in fear, working under this fear format is the reason why the system is as wound up as tight as the way it is. So the way that I explain what racism is, is everyone has biases. And we all know this. We all have biases based off experience, based off what we know, and so so forth. But when your biases is elevated through privilege, and privilege is the color of your skin, it's policy, it is it is your your position in a case and so forth, then that's what makes it white supremacy. That's what makes it racism. It's your biases elevated. Your biases are elevated, which means your biases is what's set to be true. But we know within white supremacy, that's just someone's thought and feeling and process about an organization. But then you call it a system and then you call it professionalism. And then this is what it is. People don't question why we do what we do. We know that there are numbers out there, numbers in every unit. One in three adoptions are considered um, a negative adoption. One in three adoptions are dissolved. One in three. So we have this law that came under the Clinton administration. By the way, I'm going to have have to ask the Clintons to kind of get some reparations going because they've been supported by a lot of people of color and they have been doing so much damage to a lot of people of color and then they just kind of slide on out. But under the Clinton administration is where we know that the whole termination of, of rights needed to happen within 12 to 15 months. That was under the Clinton administration that they said, we need to make this happen. Now, there was rollback on protection the way that we have ICWA. So Native Americans have certain laws and certain rights in dealing with the child welfare system. There were protections for black and brown people, but then they were sued by white foster parents that said, you are discriminated against my skin color to adopt this black child during the crack epidemic. And then they rolled that back. They rolled back the protections for black and brown people so we can stay within our family and stay within our community. So I asked the question to social workers, what generational trauma are you partaking in when you are invested and involved in someone's life? Because we all bring in trauma. So it's like if you walk into someone's house with muddy shoes, how much mud is sticking on the floor? We know it's gonna be muddy, we know it's gonna be messy, but understand that the mud is coming off your shoes. It's not coming from the family, it's coming from you as an outsider of that community and and an outsider of that family. Absolutely, and I always ask the question for the do good white people, um, since when did they wanna do good by us, right? We created these laws and these systems based on narratives that come from slavery time. We continue to uphold slavery through the 13th Amendment and through the prerequisite of foster care, right? Um, They tell us that foster care is there to save our children, but they sell us on the auction block. If you go to the OCFS website right now, you will see that they are selling children. They even got children with the word on hold across their chest, right? Little black and brown children who they're looking to have adopted. The only thing is they have upgraded their system to be from in the field to online. 
but it is the same thing. And don't make a mistake that it's not. It is the exact same thing, just called something different and done on a different platform. But it is the same thing. And I always say, if foster care was such a good thing, Black people would only get in through affirmative action. The fact that we're fighting to get out tells you that it is not someplace that is good. Okay, you have the good lines. You get the good, the good ones. That, that just hit me. Uh, so in thinking about that and in thinking about what we're seeing, I'm again gonna like pose what what are the ways in which what what is that you want to see? I want to see I would like to see, oh. shrink it until it's gone. Shrink it until it's gone. Right? Yeah. Start um having a war on poverty. Stop with the war on everything else that is caused by poverty. The foundation of the problem is poverty. And and, and it's sad because even as black people, we buy into some of the narratives. And I'm going to stop and give my colleagues here a chance. But I just need to say for a long time, I, too, felt that um, there were things that we could be doing differently. Right. Because that's what the system is designed to make you believe. So as an example, when I moved to Harlem years ago, Harlem was on the cusp of changing, right? It was on the cusp of being gentrified. So it was a school system. I still didn't want my daughters to attend. So I sent them to school downtown in Battery Park, where only two children have been removed in the last couple of years. And um, what happened down there was racism. They didn't want us there. So they continued to call this system on us. So um I used to say, well, I didn't want to send my because people said, well, why do you go to school down there and you see what keeps happening? And I said, well, parents uptown don't go to open school night. That's why our schools are failing, because parents don't go to open school night. But that's the BS, right? Because the funding of a school does not happen based on who shows up to open school night. The funding is based on homeowner taxes. And in many communities of colors, there's no home ownership. There's a lot of rentals. And for the homes that are in the community, those homes are undervalued purposely by another system, the banking system. And so therefore, these are all the hidden mechanisms that impact us and create the poverty that we fight to get from under, but have to deal with systems as as we try to pull ourselves out. But the system is only designed to push you deeper in. It keeps you on the margins. I've had people say to me, I really want to take that job, but I'm going to be $130 past the threshold to receive some type of rental assistance. And so if I take that job, I will not be able to afford to feed my family. And these are the choices that people, black people, black women are faced with every single day. They have the criminal justice system that that um, incarcerated black men first, right, for many, many years. And then they started incarcerating a black woman. But remember the felony that goes with um, being incarcerated that keeps people from moving forward in life. We don't talk about the state century registry that many people didn't even know existed in most of the 50 states that keep women from becoming employed because that comes up on that background check. It has the same impact as a felony conviction. They are the same system. Don't make a mistake about it. And 
when you put affirmative action in place and we have a hard time getting in, that's when I'm going to know this system has been fixed. Ooh, what I would like to see <laughs> is <laughs> instead of mandated reporters doing mandated reporting, I would like to see mandated reporters doing mandated supporting. So instead of being mandated reporters, be mandated supporters. So what that would look like is you going into the home and instead of looking around to see what you can report to the system or, or find a against the family, think about ways that you can support. What are the things that you can do or what is what is within your power to do or the agency that you work with, the organization that you work with, what is it within your powers to do to support these families? Because we all know that poverty is an issue. And as Joyce has, has said so clearly, poverty has been framed as neglect. Y'all might have missed that part, but the fact that poverty has been framed as neglect, if we had more instead of mandated reporters, mandated supporters, poverty wouldn't be able to be framed as neglect because folks would be coming in looking for ways to support families. Halima, absolutely, absolutely. I am taking it back to the 1990s um, for us, by us. I, it's not only poverty, it is the generational trauma caused by these systems that has happened with the Native Americans first, then the Africans. We have generational, we have, we have generational trauma. We have not even been able to heal ourselves appropriately. And I remember I was, I was talking to a colleague of mine and I said, you know, white people, they just start to understand what even white privilege is. They're not even all the way there. And I'll, you know, all white people, in my opinion, even if your allies are racist in recovery and they don't have their first chip. I don't know if you're familiar with AA, Alcoholic Anonymous, Narcolic Anonymous, NA, but you're not even at the first chip because barely did you even comprehend the role that you play and a lot of people still aren't there yet. So if we have all this generational trauma and we know that we need to heal, how can an outsider that don't even understand your trauma heal you? It's not even logical. If a doctor comes in and they say what's wrong, but they can't figure out what's wrong and they go, you know what, let's just do surgery on the heart. What? What you mean surgery on my heart? You said you didn't even know what was wrong with me. And now you want to cut me open and do surgery on the heart and do more damage than before? So as, as white clinicians, I want everyone to be an ally. But in order to be an ally, you need to be told what allyship is. And you need to be given the title, the title ally. As an ally, you can't say I'm an ally because I've decided that I'm going to be queen of England and I'm going to put my crown. That's not how it works. You don't you don't even get your own title. It is given to you by the community that you are here to serve. We are here to humbly we as professionals, because I'm a professional. We are humbly here to serve the community graciously and humbly doing that. And when you put it in that perspective and you don't know how to be that way, then I will ask you politely to get out. Okay, you know what that sounds like? That sounds like the whole 
people who go, I'm not racist because I have a biracial child. And I'm like, guess who else had biracial children? The slave owner. <laughs> who had more biracial children than the slave owner? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, I was going to say the other thing, piggybacking on what MJ said, the other thing that I would love to see is healing justice um, in the space of like when we talk about we talk a lot about abolition and we think a lot about like, how do we even get there? Well, the first steps is learning about healing justice, learning about restorative and transformative justice and like where what it means for us to restore our ability to see each other's humanity. Um, and and start to heal from some of the generational trauma that MJ mentioned that we are all suffering from and have all been just experiencing. And it's just like all of all of these things. It's like how do how do we fix this? How do we how do we heal? And there are not enough conversations where we're talking about healing, but there are a lot of conversations talking about abolition. And we can't get to abolition if we're not talking about healing justice. We can never continue, to, we can't continue to have these conversations about abolition if we're not also having a conversation about healing justice, restorative justice, and transformative justice. Because if we're gonna get to abolition, we gotta go through those steps first. I There's no way around it. I 100% agree, Halima. That's why I rocks with you. But it goes back to, again, what MJ said, right? Because white people, a lot of them are in the way, even the ones who think they're doing a good thing. They don't know what it means to be an ally. They don't know how to be an ally. And it's very difficult to heal when you're still being beat, right? Every day is a fight with these people. Every single day in every single way, it is a fight. It is only our children who are not allowed to be children. I remember the school system calling so much on me that I started holding my eight-year-old accountable to be an adult when the school psychologist and the school nurse should have been informed enough to know her eight-year-old behavior was just that. Why are you calling ACS? Because she ran in the hallway repeatedly and I couldn't stop her. You told me several times and she's still doing it. She's eight. That's why she's still doing it. Did you call on Sally? Did you call on Becky? Did you call on Karen? No, you did not. So it puts us in a position uh, um, before we learn, right? Because there's a learning curve and there's a learning process. Where at first I was saying, you know, you go to an all white school. It was like I was putting a world of blackness on her shoulders. They're looking for you too. So you need to. And I was holding her accountable when I should have been holding their asses accountable for even judging an eight year old for doing an eight year old's thing. Same thing over here with my son, who is a larger size kid. Yes. I remember him being in fourth grade <laughs> and having to go up to the school and tell him all of the reasons why he's not allowed to be a kid, why he doesn't have the luxury to be a kid. And he has to be somehow be an adult and think like an adult because the teacher has poor class management skills. And yes, I did say it just like that because he needed to understand that it's not his fault. He's all he's he's a kid. It's up to the adult that's in that situation to be able to control the class and be able to control what the situation is. And the fact that our children are always adultified 
Mm-hmm. Especially when they're larger. It's just... It, my son is Halima. My so, son is 14 and he's six foot three, over 200 pounds. Yes. Big the little guy that a lot of folks probably saw around Beyond the Bars is now a full-size man, but he's still a young man. He's still a boy. And it's like, I worry oftentimes about how the world looks at him, how the world is going to treat him. And so having to have that double consciousness and having to prepare him to know that people don't see him as he is, and he has to understand that he, he needs to protect himself and then also give him the space in the home to just be a kid and just be because there are not very many places in the world that he's going to be allowed to be that because of his size. And this started all the way in like third grade. And oftentimes for our kids, it starts. He has a baby face, but people look at him like he's a grown man. And it's like, how can you look in his face and see him as a grown man? But then we saw a nine-year-old little girl in Yonkers a few months back as a woman, even though she yelled, I am a child after not one officer, not two officers, six officers was trying to hold her down, handcuff her, put her in a police car and end up macing her because she would not listen because she wanted her daddy. They said, you're acting like a child. She said, I am a child. She tried to explain to them she was a child and we're, we're not seen as human and we're not seen um, through the various steps we go through as human beings, as we grow from birth into adulthood. And very clearly, all of what you're talking about also is the intersections of these, right? Like I worked in education, worked in foster care, family regulation system, and thinking about the ways in which like these two meet and talk to each other. And so we know our young people are coming into those spaces and very, very much holding also the realities that we're talking about again, right? It's Black Lives Matter. We know this um, from ourselves, but how do we then get these systems to understand that? And in abolishing them, we can create a new and think about other places to go. I also think about the healing of this, right? Like we're having this conversation. I know that y'all hold these conversations often. So in Halima, you naming like wanting spaces to heal, wanting spaces that are ours. Um, Joyce, you naming that like these things should be created by us, for us. MJ, I know that we had a conversation before and you would name like some of the radical, maybe I shouldn't say radical, just the ways in which- It's, it's, bad now, girl. it's a badge. So it radical. is a badge, right? It's a badge and it's a badge to say ally, accomplice. Like you have to be invited into that space. I very much think that that's true. I've been burned by people who call themselves allies and then being like, you did not show up for me in the time when this happened. And so, you know, just in the conversation we had the other night, thinking through the ways in which like other countries are doing this work um, and and just the ways in which y'all have also called folks in to to be better. I think like giving those examples here is really helpful. And then um, we have a few minutes to be dialoguing like this, and then we'll start to take some questions from the crowd. Um, just really appreciate y'all going deep here. If I can just give be if I can just give a foundation basis before we have the audience ask questions. I need everyone to hear this so clearly. White people do not have the qualifications to say what is not racist. You're not qualified. It's not on your resume. You don't have the experience. 
you can say what is racist because you specialize in racism. It's a specialty in white culture. This does not mean every white person, but it's your specialty in white America to be racist. So you can say everything that is racist, but never do you have the qualifications to say everything that's not racist because everything is racist. And I find it, again, greatly disrespectful to have people that know nothing. If you don't even understand, and I give basic, and and to me it's basic, black women's hair is basic for us, right? If you are a white individual working with children that you don't even understand their hair, get out of the community is disrespectful. You don't have the qualifications to even touch that community. If you don't even understand the basics of the outside appearance, let it, you don't even understand the inside of the trauma and the pain that you are adding to that generational trauma. If the system worked, then why come my kids that are my relatives, that are my young ones, what I work with the Gardner items, why as soon as they turn 18, they now become my adult clients? It's the same thing. We just funnel. We funnel. When you get a case, you always read their, we call it in Colorado, the trails report. And you're able to see how involved they were with the Department of Human Services. If they were involved as a kid, obviously we failed as professionals. We have to take responsibility. We have to take responsibility that we failed them because we said we can parent you better than your own parent. If not, then you're going to end up in the system. And then they end up in the system. So we did a bad parenting job on them, but but we don't take responsibility for that. We just say that was all the parents. But remember, you never allowed the parents to parents for three, four, five, six years. You didn't even allow them to parent. So how can it be the parents' issue whenever we as professionals raise these kids in the system that just perpetuates our jobs? You know, MJ, that reminds me of when DMX died a few weeks ago, how appalled I was by Children's Village. And I'm going to call them out by name. Children's Village did several posts on their Twitter account that we were the organization who his mother dropped him off to that day. We were the organization that had him in our care for the first X amount of time he was um, in congregate care. We were the organization and they said it with such profound proudness. And then they posted videos of him coming back and giving gifts and speeches to children. And I'm like, he didn't do that because you guys did a good job. He fought with demons his entire life because of what you did. His mother who needed help and didn't know that you're being called Children's Village wasn't the place for her to get the help, dropped him off and gave him over to you to assist her and you destroyed him. You played a huge part because he was 12 years old. It was a pivotal time in his life and you played a large part in destroying him. So how could they so proudly post all of these videos of him. I just could not wrap my head around it. But I tell you, they wanted to own his success in that moment. And white people will take everything and own it. The only thing they won't own is racism. I was going to say, as a person who grew up and aged out of the system, I'm also a person that has had to mother myself 
and mother others in my community. And that's what I learned how to do with no credit to the system. And as a person that also not only aged out of the system, my introduction into the criminal justice system was through the family regulation system. So had I not had that involvement or if the system had given my mom support, she was a single parent with four children, well, five children living in Brownsville Van Dyke projects in Brooklyn. Like that's one of the other poorest congressional districts in New York City. So if she had been given support and she was a, a, a working parent, so we were latchkey children. So instead of offering her support or getting her some some financial resources so she could afford some after school programs or a ch- like a, a summer camp or any any of the other things that would have supported our family, we would not have ended up in the system. And this is three. Three out of five of her children ended up in the system and aged out of the system in one way or another and are still dealing with the ramifications behind having experienced the system today. And that is another reason why that 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 is what brings me to this work, the personal connection on that level. And I'm just like here to burn the shit down. The system that is still impacting my family to this day. Yo, I got the kerosene. What's up? (laughs) J-Mac has the matches with you. Listen, it's the most ridiculous thing because, again, common sense tells us that this is not working. I mean, okay, you got away with it for some time. It's up. The gig is up. The gig Mm -hmm. is up. We see you. We see how you've buried shit in laws. We see how you act like you don't want to change it because you're afraid that one of us being black people are going to miss the help they need. We don't need you meddling in our business. We need white folks out of our business. We need you to stop blocking us from becoming professionals and getting the education we need by calling police on us in the first grade, second grade, third grade, by pushing us out and doing everything and creating these invisible lines that we call systemic racism, right? Um, For us as barriers to prevent us from succeeding. I had a young family I was working with. The young man had been released from prison and his mom and his child's mother lived in subsidized housing. He had to go through a three-quarter house because he had a felony conviction. And if he had moved into either one of their apartments, they would have been Um, evicted. So they had to make a choice to keep their housing secure. His mom was getting becoming elderly and his child's mother wanted to make sure she kept the roof over her child's head. But then people looked at the family like even his own family don't want him. No, his family wanted him. You did not see the invisible barrier that prevented his family from welcoming him. And this is what white supremacy does. It creates invisible barriers and then they create narratives 
around what is etched inside of those barriers to say, look at them. No, look at you because how, how diabolical are you that this is how you spend all your damn time trying to figure out what we can put on the books to prevent them from being successful, even down to the most recent law in Georgia, where it's a crime now to give someone water or ice on a line in the hot sun when they're waiting to vote. What is the purpose of that? Because they are going to turn their back and turn their head when water is given out on a line in a community of people who don't look like me. This is a law on a book and is only to be utilized in my community, which is what happens with a lot of laws. And so stop doing us favors. Just like leave us alone. Let us be already. What is America? America is a country stolen from Indians and built by black people. That white people get to create all the rules for. And then maintained by Latina and Latino community. <laughs> so stolen, built, and then maintained. Mm-hmm. Built by people stolen from their country. They stole a land and then stole people to build it. Imagine that. 100%. I mean, it's been happening forever. It's been happening. I can remember. And it continues to disconnect us from our traditions, right? Everything you're talking about is disconnecting from our traditions. We have a tradition of care. We have a tradition of if something's going on with a child in in the community, everyone takes care of them. When you have these rules that then make you lose all of your resources, your housing, your food, your access to education, because you decide to take someone in who needs care, then it fractures us from what we know to be our truths and creates isolation. And so I think it's also how do we then just like highlight that and maintain that. Joyce, I have a request. There's a request in here for you to talk about your past the sage metaphor. I'm just going to ask. I have to say, I just read that and I'm like, huh? That's the sage. Listen, I I don't remember that one. I come up with new ones every day. (laughs) If it comes to you, she got superbars. She got she has too many bars to remember. (laughs) Yeah, listen. Um at at the end of the day, though, what I think we need is a combination of everything that MJ has said, Halima has said, and what I'm saying. I think um, from what um, MJ says, it's about helping white people to know their place and to be accountable to the role that they need to play, which is behind us, right? Because you don't support from the front. You support from the back and they clearly want to lead on everything. And you can't teach me about what I've experienced and what Halima says, which is, you know, the healing part. And we're only going to heal when they get behind us and know their place and stop meddling in our business and telling us what's good for us. Because what is it, MJ? For us, by us and to pass laws to stop them from utilizing these systems to be systems of harm um, purposely to cast the net wide and capture Black people. Great summarization. I'm here for it. Pass the peace pipe, y'all. 
Yeah. After all of the years they've incarcerated black people for marijuana, now they want to pass pass a law, and now they're now they're discussing whether or not we should let people out of prison who were put in prison up hundred years ago for marijuana, but yet we're not talking about how we create general wealth from the selling of that. What they want to do is just let people out of prison and we're supposed to be grateful. And if another white person asks me, do I forgive a white person for the shit that they've done? Oh my goodness. No, I don't forgive you. I don't forgive you white people who called from the school system um, and, and, and sick child um, the family regulation system on me. Forgive yourself. Don't tell me about your hardship, about you were mandated because you weren't mandated to do that. You were mandated if you saw something. What they do is call when it doesn't look like something they understand and they don't have mm-hmm. questions. They go in the closet and call in secret because white people ain't really that bold unless they're on the phone with the police. All right. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's true. I've experienced it. I'm not going to say anything to him, but when I get upstairs, I'm going to call the police. Like I had to check people because, again, I live in Harlem. And when we talk about um, healing justice and we talk about reforms, right, we've created spaces for white people to use a substance um and we created methadone because who uses or who was known to use heroin? White people, right? So we want to keep them safe and we talk about harm reduction. But then in my neighborhood, we have little black boys who was trying to be in stairwells and apartment buildings to not be outside and be harassed or killed by the police just for simply smoking marijuana, right? Where, where, where's the harm reduction for them? So I was like, Karen, don't you dare call a black or um, call the police on a black boy in this building again, because we were here long before you got here. And we're not going to do that. He lives in this building. His mom doesn't want him smoking in the house for whatever reason. And he could smoke in the stairwell if he so chooses. And if you don't like the smell in the stairway, go outside to exercise. Don't use the stairs in the building. So I. I think that really gets into also community strategies, right? Like when we're talking about alternatives, it's how do you talk to your neighbors, get everyone on board and have that understanding. And um, really thinking about um, how do folks also begin to think about that within their jobs, right? Like a lot of folks, this is a job when it's our lives. And so is this the right job for you? Maybe not, you know, it's not that if you're not willing, what are you willing to risk? Because if you're not willing to risk something, then it's our lives. So as we go into this next section, we have a few minutes to answer some questions. There has been one thrown out about the financial part of this, the dollar dollars. And what are your thoughts about the ways that funds are getting used? Um, and if you want that money to do something else with, what would you use it for? I would invest more in communities and divest away from systems. It's like invest in communities, invest in organizations that are led by black women and other women of color um, and invest in, in, in the leadership of impacted people. That's all I got to say. I, I think Halima said it best. I, I, I love it when you say divest in system and invest in us. Um, 
only we can heal ourselves. That's and, and, and I think that's that's what I want. I'm not telling white people not to be social workers. I'm telling you to be our allies. I'm asking you to be our allies. I'm, I'm saying work with us. Um, I always use the analogy of Thanksgiving dinner. If I invited a white person over for Thanksgiving dinner and they say, what do I bring? And I say, just bring yourself. And then that white person comes over, a good friend of mine. And then they say, what can I do to help? And I go, will you pass me the sage? Because we making dressing. I don't know what y'all do in New York, but we make dressing in the South. We don't do no stuffing. That's not my business. But if I say pass the sage and then she goes, well, no, I don't think you need sage. I think you should do this, this and this. And then she tries to make how they make it in their home stuffing is disrespectful. It's disrespectful. And then if I say, okay, pass me the sage. And then she goes, you know what? I think you need new curtains in your house. I'm going to do some measurements for some new curtains. That's disrespectful. You come into my space and you don't do what I need and you do what you believe is what's best. That is the epitome of white supremacy. What I think is what's best for you based off of my biases and my opinion. So I'm just asking you to come over for Thanksgiving, right? And just pass the sage and sit down and you will be a wonderful guest. And I will invite you next year. But you want to be invited to work with these communities. That's what it boils down to. And even people of color, mind you, people of color were used as tools against our community. We're used to hush down the, the, the loud black woman who's loud because you are literally taking her children away. Not loud because she's not getting the right sauce at a restaurant, loud because you are removing a piece of her soul that is her child. And my job as a black woman is to calm down, hush, hush, let's be professional because then the judge is going to feel some type of way. Then you really won't get your kids based off of the love that you have. And then, and then if you're too reserved because of all the trauma you've been told to be quiet, then she don't even care about this case. So why would those kids go back? So I need people of color in this field to also understand our roles. How are we used as a tool against? Psychology is used as a tool against. Social workers are used as a tool against. Halima used a term, parentified. That is a white person's term. Because mind you, white America don't allow our children to be children. So how can we be parentified whenever we was never allowed to have a childhood in the first place? These aren't the same white individuals that are marching for Black Lives Matter, Black Individuals Matter. But we can march for the women's march. Don't even get me started on the pink pussy hat march. That's what those are called. Not for me. So. I'm just saying that understand all of our individual roles. If you are not dismantling, you are upholding. If you are upholding white supremacy, you are not an ally. You are our enemy. And that we have to shine a light to because these are individuals that are enemies. The white supremacy system is not this invisible bad ghost. This is not Ghostbusters. We're not trying to find it. We know who they are. We can call out their names. We can call out the organization and the people that work within those organizations. That's not invisible. That's very well, friends. I don't have more to add to that one. Um, and thinking about the questions that we're getting, there was a question of how do you speak to the folks who don't want to hear this? Are you all speaking to those folks? Who care about those we're folks? too busy speaking to the folks that are willing to listen. 
that are willing to at least listen, the folks that don't want to hear it, it's like, you know, it, it doesn't make much sense to waste our time with the folks that don't want to hear it, because what's going to happen is they're going to eventually hear it from the folks that are like willing to listen. Because the folks that are willing to listen are sometimes their family member, that granddaughter that they really love and they probably lost touch with or that that daughter or that that family member that they they had lost contact with because of their racist ways and their, their 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 racism. And, you know, now they're starting to come around. And so we'll leave that up to the folks that 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 can do that work. But. As for us, we're speaking to the folks that are listening and the folks that are doing the work with us. The folks that ain't listening, that's for other folks to deal with. Or don't want to hear, rather. It's for other folks to deal with. Anybody else? So, <laughs> J-Mac and that, radical J-Mac, she, oh, adore you. Um, I have a coalition. Um, under the NJ Consulting Firm, and we call out individuals that that are that are doing this. Um, because here's the thing: as as I describe white America as a domestic violence perpetrator, the only thing that a DV perpetrator understands is shame and money. You have to make them pay. So we need to start suing people. There's actually reforming a system that cannot reform itself. Child welfare reform by class action lawsuits. That's the only thing capitalist America understands is making people financially pay. So the people that have their fingers in their ears, I'm fine, but put them wallets out on the tables because we need to start suing for generational trauma, emotional distress, breaking up communities, dis, dis, just dis, deregulating all of our systems. And that's how we get people's attention is whenever people are named in lawsuits and put on blast. So under the MJ Consulting Firm, um, we are actually putting together the coalition to help bring about change by calling people out in order to bring them in. So everyone, everyone's getting it, Halima. Um, and we're and we're excited about it because to tell you the truth, if it was just me, I would just call people out and leave them out to dry because that's how they've done our community. But I work with some really compassionate, amazing people that are saying, let's help them learn. Right. Which, in my opinion, is slavery again, because it's black people working for free. Why I got to teach you to do your job and you get paid for this. Right. But that's just a personal opinion. I'm open to bringing in people to be community, a part of this community. I'm greatly open to that. And you don't have to look like me to be a part of this community, but you have to be invited. And that's what's different. You have to be invited. Yes. I was going to pass the mic over to you, Joyce. No, I mean, I think they didn't set it all. MJ didn't shut it down because understand without an invitation, you don't need to come here. Right. Um, how are you helping if you bring in what you want me to have and not asking me what it is I want or need? And then you feel good about yourself because you say, I gave you pampers. Well, guess what? I don't have any babies in my house. I don't need your pampers, right? Give me what I need. And you're only going to know what I need if you take time to ask and then listen to my response. 
If you're asking in a robotic fashion just because you're going through the steps, that's still not helping. And oftentimes that happens. And I look at this system that we have with billions of dollars. And I had someone reach out to me the other week asking me to donate to buy suitcases for children for them to change homes. I'm like, hell no. Absolutely not. Leave them at home and they won't need no damn suitcases. And if the system can do such a good job, they can't buy them a basic article to travel from home to home. You gotta be kidding me, girl. Bye. I think Michelle, I, I shared this with you um, that I remember I was I was at a conference, um, a, ch- a child welfare conference, and there was a, a young woman from from England, and she looked at us like we were barbaric, like like we were. She said, you you remove kids from the home when there's a problem in the home. In England, we bring social workers, move them into the home. And she looked at us like we were just, and I, I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed. And I was like, oh my God, we I never even thought about that, right? Like we put an intensive in-home services slash surveillers. <laughs> we put an intensive in-home surveillers because they, you know, mm-hmm. they see what's going on in the home and then they report back and it's usually negatively impact the family. And they said, why would you take children away from their families and away from their homes? Bring in who you believe needs to be in that home. If a mom is struggling and, and it's hard for her to get the kids off to school on time, you bring someone in. They get paid by the, you get paid the exact same amount and you bring them in to help get on track. That's more of that community piece and that community base that has been stripped from us. Mind you, all brown cultures are collective cultures. It's it's Western that are individualistic cultures. It's European that come from the individual, which means that you think about yourself independently from everyone else. But collective cultures, you think about how does your community, how do you relate to your community? How are you involved in your community? And that's why, going back to what you you said, Michelle, about us coming together. We raised together as a community. We have generational households. It doesn't mean that something is not working out. It means that we respect our elders. I mean, COVID should have been a wake-up call to white America with all of everyone's family in nursing homes. Because uh, a lot of uh, Europeans actually send their family members when they get older to uh, Asian countries instead of putting them in a nursing home because of how respectful the Asian culture is to their elderly. In African cultures, there is no nursing home. It's just home. And the family lives together and they take care of each other. But that's the individualistic society. And that's why we shouldn't mess because we have our ideas of what we believe a family is. And when you have the individualistic society, which is white westernized European thoughts with collective cultures, this is why we're failing. But, you know, just look at I, I, I mean, I literally have to laugh when I think about the things that white people do and say they shoot up their schools. But we have police in our school. I don't know the last time there was a shooting in our school. Right. Um, we have um, metal detectors in our school. Right teaching them about the prison industrial complex, conditioning them, right? Already that they're being policed and watched and searched and surveillanced. 
um, the things they do for the insurance policy in their community, how they put their people in nursing homes. They don't care for grandma. I know we did, right? Like you just said, we didn't put my grandma in a nursing home. She lived with us and was well cared for until she passed away. That's just how it's done. Like their behavior is really fucking poor. And they project all of that crap onto us. And it's time they're called out for it. And it's not everyone who does it. But for those who are not doing it, the other half is supporting it because they don't call it out. And if you're not part of the change, then you're part of the problem. So you can't be on both sides of the fence. You can't tell me that you're my ally and that you're supporting the change that I want to happen, but not call out someone else who looks like you for their bad behavior. And for doing the things that they know is wrong and and, and you're not speaking out against these narratives, you're, you're saying to me in a soft way, Oh, well, yeah, I really do think that um, there should be some changes to the child welfare system. And in the recent um, years, there has been small changes. But remember, we still have to protect the children. Why are you not protecting your damn kids? Why are your kids running up in schools with shotguns and Uzis and killing a bunch of people? Why are they running up into a church and shooting people? Why are they doing the things? that they are doing that we are not talking about? And why are we surveilling my neighborhood when these things are happening in your neighborhood? Really good questions to be asking, especially as we talk about knowing that we know how to take care of ourselves and that we know that the rates of what we're talking about when it comes to domestic violence, when it comes to levels of abuse and neglect, harm are not different within white communities. And so what does it mean to then decide and choose not to go back to your community to work in, but then to work in ours? Um, so really, really solid questions to be asking as folks are saying, what's the conversation to have? And as you said, Halima, like those are the, conver- like I can't, I'm not speaking to those people. To me, it's the job of the folks who are coming out of social work schools to go back to their communities and speak to those folks. That's not our job. We have so much on our plate and oftentimes don't have the freedom or the space to even spend time in conversation like this, imagining up all the things. And we do that in our extra time. Um, So we have five more minutes left and I want to give y'all the floor to say anything that it is that you feel is vital for folks to know right now or anything that you're holding. I really just am so grateful to be in this conversation for a long time, um, being in institutions and not knowing how to uh, make small acts of change and coming into learning and being able to say no more. Um, So hope that this also touches folks' hearts tonight and gets folks activated and understanding what these issues are. Um, But space for y'all to share out your last thoughts and also we'll make sure in the chat that folks know how to get in contact with you too. So all your links are in there. Just let me know. My last thought is changing mandated reporters into mandated supporters. So when you think about your role as a mandated reporter, turn the reporting part into supporting as you go out here into families that or into communities that are different from your own. And my last thought is um, support 
my legislation for change. There's mandated reporters to ensure that parents know their rights and is offered the opportunity for legal support from the moment that child protection agents knock on their door. Um, There's informed consent to ensure that women are not drug tested in a hospital setting prenatal or postpartum um, for the sole purpose of reporting to child welfare, um, no medical reasons attached, and also um, anti-harassing bill to prevent people from utilizing the anonymous calling mechanism to harass and weaponize the child welfare system or the family regulation system against families. It's always hard to follow Halima and J Mac because you stop. You guys are fire. Yeah. From the moment I met you, I was like, oh my God, how many emails did I send out the day after I met you? Like 10. Okay. I sent out like 10 emails saying, you got to meet her, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> um, as a newbie to this, this form and this field and, and feeling welcome, I want people to know that there is support within this. Um, But what I tell my students, and if we have a lot of young professionals in here, there's just a couple of things I want to leave you with. Do not fall in love with a new agency's mission statement. Don't. Or old agency's mission statement, because they write a lot of things they don't do. And I'm going to be kind and not call out agencies on here tonight. But they do that. White-led agencies do that. And... Joyce, on that, try to be with an anti-racist organization. And let me give you the basic minimum of how you can tell if the agency is a racist or anti-racist. And mind you, there is no in-between. You're either racist in recovery to become anti-racist or you're racist. If an organization serves 60% Latino males, And that's the clientele population that they serve. But the decision makers in that agency is not 60% Latino males. It is a racist organization. It upholds white supremacy. Because what white people are saying is only we can help them and only we can save them. Take a look at the board of directors. Because it's not always just the agency. You may see a black face. And mind you, black women, we are healers. But when stuff is burned to the ground, we get promoted because they say, fix this. And it's always been on our shoulders to do that. Always. So don't say there is a black director or there's a person of color director who makes the decisions. Look into the board of directors of an agency who is able to actually send out the money and say, this is what's going to this. Who's able to allocate all of those? So at the bare minimum, See the reflection of the agency in the population. If the if the agency is not reflected in the population that they serve, they are a racist organization. That's about 90% out there. Rough guesstimate. But I just want you to know that. Know what you're getting into. And don't be illusioned by this is a great mission statement. They do great work. Is the community saying that they do great work? Or, is, or are all the white people patting themselves on the back because they're writing themselves a nice check? So just be aware. And we welcome you to be a part of this community as allies. Thank you. 
Thank you for those words. Thank you for your time. Thank you for all that you're holding in community and for for us by us. We got us. So, right. And in this moment, just uh, wanting to thank Haymarket for supporting this work. All the folks over there are doing wonderful things and holding us down. And thank you to the NASW. Check us out. Um, MJ, Halima, JMAC, Joyce. Um, really, really great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.